Good afternoon and welcome to Thrilling Tales. In honor of St. Patrick's Day this month, we have a short story by Ray Bradbury, which is the first Irish short story written by this well-known author. The story came from Bradbury's own experiences of living in Dublin in 1953-54 to while writing the screenplay for Moby Dick for film director John Huston. It's a wonderful, funny story about the Irish with a surprise ending. And now, the first night of Lent. So you want to know all the whys and wherefores of the Irish. What shapes them to their dooms and runs them on their way, you ask? Well, listen then. For though I've known but a single Irishman in all my life, I knew him without pause for 144 consecutive nights. Stand close. Perhaps in him you'll see the entire race which marches out of the rains but to vanish through the mists. Hold on. Here they come. Look out. There they go. This Irishman, his name was Nick. During the autumn of 1953, I began a screenplay in Dublin, and each afternoon a hired cab drove me 30 miles out from the River Liffey to the huge gray Georgian country house where my producer-director rode to hounds. There we discussed my eight pages of daily script through the long fall, winter, and spring evenings. Then each midnight, ready to turn back to the Irish Sea and the Royal Hibernian Hotel, I'd wake the operator in the Kilcock Village Exchange and have her put me through to the warmest, if totally unheated, spot in town. Heber Finn's pub, I'd shout, once connected. Is Nick there? Could you send him along here, please? My mind's eye saw them, the local boys, lined up, peering over the barricade at that freckled mirror so like a frozen winter pond, and themselves discovered all drowned and deep under that lovely ice. Amid all their jostlings and their now-here's-a-secret-and-stage-whisper commotion stood Nick, my village driver, his quietness abounding. I heard Heber Finn sing out from the phone. I heard Nick start up and reply, Just look at me, a-heading for the door! Early on, I learned that heading for the door was no nerve-shattering process that might affront dignity or destroy the fine filigree of any argument being woven with great and breathless beauty at Heber Finn's. It was rather a gradual disengagement, a leaning of the bulk, so one's gravity was diplomatically shifted toward that far, empty side of the public room where the door, shunned by all, stood neglected. Meantime, a dozen conversational warps and woofs must be ticked, tied, and labeled, so next morn, with hoarse cries of recognition, patterns might be seized and the shuttle thrown with no pause for breath or thought. Timing it, I figured the long part of Nick's midnight journey, the length of Heber Finn's, took half an hour. The short part, from Finn's to the house where I waited, took but five minutes. So it was, on the night before the first night of Lent, I called. I waited, and at last, down through the night forest, thrashed the 1931 Chevrolet, peat turf colored on top like Nick, car and driver gasped, sighed, wheezed softly, easily, gently as they nudged into the courtyard, and they groped down the front steps under a moonless but brightly starred sky. I peered through the window at unstirred dark. The dashboard had been dead these many years. Nick? None other he whispered secretly, and ate it a fine warm evening. The temperature was 50, but Nick being no nearer to Rome than the Tipperary shoreline, so weather was relative. 
A fine morning evening, I climbed up front and gave the squealing doors its absolutely compulsory rust-splittering slam. How have you been, Nick? Ah, he let the car bulk and grind itself down the forest path. I got my health. Ain't that all and everything with Lent coming on tomorrow? Lent, I mused. What will you give up for Lent, Nick? I've been turning it over. Nick sucked his cigarette suddenly. The pink-lined mask of his face blinked off the smoke. And why not these terrible things you see in me mouth? Dear as gold fillings and a dread congestion of the lungs they be. Put it all down, add them up, and you got a sick loss by the years turning, you know. So you'll not find these filthy creatures in me mouth again the whole time of Lent, and who knows after. Bravo, said I, a non-smoker. Bravo, says I to myself, wheezed Nick, when I flinched with smoke. Good luck, I said. I'll need it, whispered Nick, with the sin's own habit to be broke. And we moved with firm control, with thoughtful shift of weight, down and around a turfy hollow, and through a mist, and into Dublin, at 31 easy miles an hour. Bear with me while I stress this. Nick was the most careful driver in all God's world, including any sane, small, quiet, butter-and-milk-producing country you name. Above all, Nick stands innocent and sainted when compared to those motorists who key that small switch marked paranoia each time they fuse themselves to their bucket seats in Los Angeles, Mexico City, or Paris. Also to those blind men who forsaking tin cups and canes but still wearing their Hollywood dark glasses laugh insanely down the Via Benito, shaking brake drum lining like carnival serpentine out their race car windows. Consider the Roman ruins. Surely they are the wreckage strewn and left by those motor-biking otters who all night beneath your hotel window shriek down dark Roman alleys, Christians hell-bent for the Colosseum lion pits. Nick now, see his easy hands loving the wheel in a slow clock-like turning, as soft and silent as winter constellations snow down the sky. Listen to his mist-breathing voice all night quiet as he charms the road, his foot a tenderly benevolent pat on the whispering accelerator, never a mile under thirty, never two miles over. Nick, Nick and his steady boat, gentling a mild sweet lake where all time slumbers. Look, compare, and bind such a man to you with summer grasses, gift him with silver, shake his hand warmly at each journey's end. Good night, Nick, I said at the hotel. See you tomorrow. God willing, whispered Nick, and he drove softly away. Let 23 hours of sleep, breakfast, lunch, supper, late night calf pass. Let hours of writing, bad script into fair script, fade to peat mist and rain. And there I come again, another midnight. Out of the Georgian mansion, its door throwing a warm hearth of color before me, as I tread down the steps to feel braille-wise and fog for the car, I know hulks there. I hear its enlarged and asthmatic heart gasping in the blind air, and Nick coughing his gold by the ounce is not more precious cough. And there you are, sir, said Nick. And as I climbed in the sociable front seat and gave the door its slam, Nick, I said, smiling. And then... The impossible happened. The car jerked as if shot from the blazing mouth of a cannon, 
roared, took off, bounced, skidded, then cast itself in full stoning ricochet down the path among shattered bushes and writhing shadows. I snatched my knees as my head hit the car top four times. Nick! I almost shouted, Nick! Visions of Los Angeles, Mexico City, Paris jumped through my mind. I gazed in frank dismay at the speedometer. 80, 90, 100 kilometers. We shot out a great blast of gravel behind and hit the main road, rocked over a bridge and slid down in the midnight streets of Kilcock. No sooner in than out of town at 110 kilometers. I felt all Ireland's grass put down its ears when we, with a yell, jumped over a rise. Nick, I thought, and turned, and there he sat, only one thing the same. On his lips, a cigarette burned, blinding first one eye, then the other. But the rest of Nick behind the cigarette was changed as if the adversary himself had squeezed and molded and fired him with a dark hand. There he was, whirling the wheel round about, over around. Here we frenzied under trestles, out of tunnels. Here knocked crossroad signs, spinning like weathercocks in whirlwinds. Nick's face, the wisdom was drained from it. The eyes neither gentle nor philosophical. The mouth neither tolerant nor at peace. It was a face washed raw, a scalded peeled potato, a face more like a blinding searchlight raking its steady and meaningless glare ahead while his quick hands snaked and bit and bit the wheel again to lean us round curves and jump us off cliff after cliff of night. It's not Nick, I thought. It's his brother, or a dire thing's come in his life, some destroying affliction or blow, a family sorrow or sickness. Yes, that's the answer. And then Nick spoke, and his voice, it was changed too. Gone was the mellow peat bog, the moist sob, the warm fire in and out of the cold rain. Gone the gentle grass. Now the voice fairly cracked at me, a clarion, a trumpet, all iron and tin. Well, how you been since, Nick shouted. How is it with you, he cried. And the car, it too, had suffered violence. It protested the change, yes, for it was an old and much beaten thing that had done its time and now only wished to stroll along like a crusty beggar towards sea and sky, careful of its breath and bones. But Nick would have none of that and caged the wreck on as if thundering toward hell, there to warm his cold hands at some special blaze. Nick leaned, the car leaned, great livid gases blew out in fireworks from the exhaust. Nick's frame, my frame, the car's frame, all together were racked and shuddered and ticked wildly. My sanity was saved from being torn clean off the bone by a simple act. My eyes, seeking the cause of our plaguing flight, ran over the man blazing here like a sheet of ignited vapor from the abyss and laid hands to the answering clue. Nick! I gasped. It's the first night of Lent. So, Nick said, surprised. So, I said, remembering your Lenten promise, why is that cigarette in your mouth? Nick did not know what I meant for a moment. Then he cast his eyes down, saw the jiggling smoke and shrugged. Ah, he said, I give up the other. And suddenly it all came clear. The other 140-odd nights, at the door of the old Georgian house, I had accepted from my employer a fiery douse of scotch or bourbon or some such drink against the chill. 
then breathing summer wheat or barley or oats or whatever from my scorched and charcoal mouth, I'd walked out to a cab where sat a man who during all long evenings wait for me to phone for his services had lived in Heber Finn's pub. Fool, I thought, how could I have forgotten this? And there in Heber Finn's during the long hours of lacy talk, there was like planting and bringing to crop a garden among busy men, each contributing his seed or flower and wielding the implements, their tongues and the raised foam height glasses, their own hands softly curled about the dear drinks. There Nick had taken into himself a mellowness. And that mellowness had distilled itself down into slow rain that damped his smoldering nerves and put the wilderness fires in every limb of him out. Those same showers laved his face to leave the tidal marks of wisdom, the lines of Plato and Aeschylus there. The harvest mellowness colored his cheeks, warmed his eyes soft, lowered his voice to a husking mist, and spread in his chest to slow his heart to a gentle jog trot. It rained at his arms to loosen his hard-mouthed hands on the shuddering wheel and sit him with grace and ease in his horsehair saddle as he gentled us through the fogs that kept us and Dublin apart. And with the malt on my own tongue, fluming up my sinus with burning vapors, I had never detected the scent of any spirits on my old friend here. Ah, said Nick again, yah, I give up the other. The last bit of jigsaw fell into place. Tonight, the first night of Lent. Tonight, for the first time in all the nights I had driven with him, Nick was sober. <coughs> All those other 140-odd nights, Nick hadn't been driving careful and easy just for my safety, no, but because of the gentle weight of mellowness, sloping now on this side, now on that side of him, as we took the long curves. Oh, who really knows the Irish, say I, and which half of them is which? Nick? Who is Nick? And what in the world is he? Which Nick's the real Nick, the one that everyone knows? I will not think on it. There is only one Nick for me, the one that Ireland shaped herself with her weathers and waters, her seedings and harvestings, her brands and mashes, her brews, bottlings and ladling out, her summer grain colored pubs astir in advance with the wind in the wheat and barley by night. You may hear the good whisper way out in forest on bog as you roll by. That's Nick to the teeth, eye and heart, to his easygoing hands. If you ask what makes the Irish what they are, I point on down the road and tell where you turn to Heber Finns. The first night of Lent, and before you count nine, we're in Dublin. I'm out of the cab, and it's puttering there at the curb, and I lean in to put my money in the hands of my driver. Earnestly, pleadingly, warmly, with all the friendly urging in the world, I look into that fine man's raw, strange, torch-like face. Nick, I said. Sir, he shouted. Do me a favor, I said. Anything, he shouted. Take this extra money, I said, and buy the biggest bottle of Irish moss you can find. And just before you pick me up tomorrow night, Nick, drink it down. Drink it all. Will you do that, Nick? Will you promise me? Cross your heart and hope to die to do that? He thought on it, and the very thought damped down the ruinous blaze in his face. Ah, oh, you make it terrible hard on me, sir, he said. I forced his fingers shut on the money. At last he put it in his pocket and faced silently ahead. 
Good night, Nick, I said. See you tomorrow. God willing, said Nick, and he drove away.